We are in Acts chapter 4. We are talking about saintly solidarity this morning, and it comes from a text in Matthew chapter 4 that we are going to pick up in a moment. But let me remind you about a saint in the Old Testament who faced some very, very severe trials and difficulties and challenges. He was one of the most outstanding saints in all of the Old Testament. In fact, he's used in James chapter 4 as the illustration of a prayer warrior. And so we have the story that we've talked about on multiple occasions where Elijah is ministering for God. He leads a great revival, tremendous revival against the prophets of Baal. And the peoples of Israel are so excited that they're going to change. They're going to get rid of the prophets of Baal that Ahab and Jezebel have been supporting. But Jezebel is so upset about the fact that her false prophets are going to be ousted, and they were, many of them, ousted over a cliff. She is uh, upset. So she sends Elijah a note that says, you're going to be like my prophets tomorrow. You're going to die. It's a note, not an assassin, but it effectively causes Elijah to just fall apart. He's tired. He's weak. He's had a really busy schedule. And what happens is he starts running. He chooses to run. Let me make that the key word here. He chooses to run. He chooses to just leave the entire revival. He chooses to stop praying. He's the prayer warrior example of the Old Testament, but he runs. He chooses to leave the fellowship of the other believers. He chooses to leave his servant and those students that he was training, and he runs away. He runs away from ministry, from prayer. He's running away from God and struggling. And what happens is he's hurt all those people who are believers, who he's led in revival, and they're just wandering. But as he runs away for several weeks, he gets really depressed, really beaten down emotionally, spiritually. comes to a point where he says, I'm not as good as my father's. I'm not as good as the other believers. Um, And even though he ran for fear of his life, he comes to a spot where he says, I want to die. I want to, if he really wanted to die, he would have stayed there and become a martyr. But he really, he ran. And what happens is he gets to a point where in his life, God takes him to a cave and he argues with God. God says, what are you doing here? And he continues to argue with God saying, I'm not changing. I'm not going to budge. I don't think you were fair with me. You did right because I, I only have not bowed the knee. And so he rehearses this time and time and time again. By choice, he has run. He's gotten depressed. It's gotten worse by his choice. And then we fast forward to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we have believers whose lives are threatened they are going to face life and death in the days ahead. But they've been arrested. They've been told, if you continue to teach about Jesus, beware, keep silent. And how do they respond? They have a totally different choice. They choose instead that what they're going to do is they're going to stay in the fellowship, stay around one another because they know they need one another. We talked about last week that they're going to stay praying unto the Lord. Not panicking, not pouting, not running away or accusing God. They're going to draw near and say, God, we still need you. We still need you. They choose to obey God's commands. They say, God, we need your help. Give us the boldness to continue to do what you commanded us to do. 
even though this is really difficult, even though this is life-threatening, this is really tough, we need you. Give us boldness to continue to obey you. They choose to do this. And as a result, as we followed up last week, we read in chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. As well, it says, they spake the word of God with boldness. They went out and obeyed. They continued to minister. They have the power of the Spirit of God upon them. But there is something else. We read in the next verse, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. That is, they maintained a unity with one another that is absolutely amazing. They had a, they had a commonality here. This is exactly what Jesus had prayed for just days before, weeks before. When on that last evening that Jesus with, was with the disciples, he prayed he prayed that they all may be one as you and I are, Father, and that they also may be one with us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And as a result of the prayer and as a result of them listening to what Jesus had instructed them, they chose to stay together, to pray, to obey, and to have this unity with one another, which is absolutely amazing considering these facts. Consider the unity, consider the camaraderie they had with the idea of how many people this was involving. We read in this passage, we read in verse 32, the multitude of them that believed. How many is that? Well, they started off in chapter 1, they started off with the 12 and the ladies then combined with them, there was 120 of them that we read about in chapter 1. Then we read, when they first went out and preached the word of God, then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and there was added unto them how many? 3,000, okay, in chapter 2. And then we read that they went out and preached after they healed the lame man, and when they were arrested and taken away, we read about many of those who heard the message on that day responded, and there was how many that got saved that day? Do you remember? 5,000 men, men alone. So within this period of time, the multitude of believers is anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people. That's a huge group. And yet this group of, let's just keep it on the small figure, 15,000 people are being described as having one heart and one spirit. They didn't call themselves Baptists because Baptists don't do that. Okay, Usually we argue about everything. Instead, these people were of one heart and one mind. That amazes me. And it amazes me that they had this spirit of unity even though they grew very quickly. In fact, this church has grown in just a matter of weeks. We don't know how many days it's been that all of a sudden 5,000 were added since the day of Pentecost. We don't know. But we know there's been a lot of people Lots of new people added to the congregation. A, a lot of new people who are new Christians who don't know a whole lot. A lot of individuals who they've never met before or they didn't know before. And yet they're of one spirit and one mind. It amazes me that these people had that. And then I have to ask, you know, what united them? 
What caused 15,000 people, so many who are new to faith, what was it that held them, glued them together? Well, it's God's Holy Spirit that's gluing them because what did they have in common? Faith in Jesus Christ, right? They even preach about Him, about His resurrection. They have the boldness to declare this. And because of their belief in Christ who gave them the Holy Spirit, they're experiencing this amazing unity that is so practical that they know who has needs within their group. Did you read the rest of this? We talked about how they were one soul, one spirit. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. They had things in common. With great power they gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them. And neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands, houses, sold them, and brought the prices of those things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according to that he had need." They were so in tune with each other, they knew that people within this group had some physical needs. They weren't the type of modern church that they just visit in the foyer and then they don't know anything about each other. That they don't know, you know, you know where, what their job status is or they don't know what their life status. These people knew. They were engaged in fellowship. And what strikes me as amazing about this unity of spirit is it happened despite the diversity. Now, I understand diversity and unity are big words in our day and age. Let's give them biblical concepts. Diversity is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Diversity is something that is, can be amazing, that God didn't make any two of us exactly alike. Aren't you glad? Okay, diversity is good. And in this church, they had diversity. They had disciples from Galilee who were looked down upon by the Judeans, but not in the church. That changed in the church. In this church, you have people who, who are now joining the Galileans, and they're of one spirit and one mind, though previous to being bound together in Christ, the Judeans would have thought the Galileans are second-class peoples. They have unity where it says earlier in the book, it says Jews from every nation had gathered at Pentecost. By the way, I don't know how many are still here at the time from Pentecost, but I know some are because of the verse that where I stopped. Because we even read about Joseph, who by the apostles was nicknamed Barnabas, who comes from the country of Cyprus. So some of the believers who had responded, at, at, who were there for Pentecost and responded to the gospel, they stayed. And so you have people from different nations. And then on top of that, when he was back in Acts chapter 1 describing the Jews from different nations, he added to it Jews and proselytes. Not all of them were ethnic Jews. They were converted Gentiles who came from all these different regions from around the Roman Empire. Regions that didn't all have the same customs. They didn't have the same dietary ideas. They didn't have the same you know, uh, practical idea about finances and different things. And yet they are united in spirit and in heart. There's rich people there. Rich people who own houses and lands. Poor people. The beggar. Widows who have needs, as we'll see especially in the next chapter, that the widows have needs. And yet now, no longer is finances separating the people. 
That was a problem in Jewish society. We read about it in the ministry of Jesus, how he said that the Pharisees was very customary to put the wealthy and their friends at the higher seats and ignore the poor folk. James writes about it, that that was a common dilemma in their society, that people would segregate based upon finances. It happened even in the church of Corinth that they were segregating themselves from each other because they didn't want to have the same meal together, rich and poor. But in this church, they have a commonality here. They have a unity despite their financial, their job status. There's men and ladies. In that culture, that wasn't normal, that men and ladies would have this type of unity of spirit. There are some priests that have already gotten saved. Barnabas is a priest. He's a Levite. And so you have these peoples that are gathering. You have a priest who's trained, and then you have foolish and unlearned men, that is the apostles, that is they were untrained. They didn't have degrees. So you have degreed people, and then you have undegreed people. And yet they're united. And yet they have a unity of spirit. May I suggest to you that in the common world that we keep on talking about, you know, diversity, get rid of it. Diversity is good. As long, you know, and diversity is great. Unity is good with diversity. Diversity and uniformitarity, that's wrong. That's when you lose individual identity. And if our society wants real unity... They need Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's going to get people like us together. Where we wouldn't typically get together. We're in this room. We have different colors, different speech patterns. We have different dress, different job status, different education status, different ages. We have different marriage statuses. We have a wide variety of here. Some of you, you like coconut. The rest of you, you love the Lord, you know, but we have a unity. We have different food tastes. We can joke about it. But the unity we have in Christ is what's critical. And so here this text is showing us that these people, in the middle of their trial, they leaned upon that unity that they had. Then what strikes me about this unity is how it became so practical in its outworking. That's the amazing part that we read, that they were so united that they minister one to another in the face of life-threatening situations, in the face of a hard, difficult challenge that if you continue to minister and speak about the name of Jesus, you're going to go to jail. You're going to lose your life. And in the midst of that setting, they are ministering one to another in, in actual practical ways. They don't just talk about, I care for you. By our love, they will know that we are Christians. They actually do something to help one another. They actually go out of their way where it says they had all things common. That doesn't mean it's a form of communism that they, that they got rid of, of anybody possessing. Uh-uh, you read the rest of the text. They still possess their own property. They just chose some of them to sell portions of it and give the money to the church so that they could help out one another. The point is that these people did help out one another. That they were looking out, that they were united, saying, hey, if somebody, some widow has a desperate need, and she's a sister in Christ, if I can help, I'll sell portions of my property, and I'll give that money to the apostles that they can help out those widows. If there's another beggar who needs some assistance, we will give up 
some extra meals. We will give up something of our possessions and we will help that person out. If there's somebody traveling through, we will open our homes. We will assist them. We will, we will though, if there's somebody who's discouraged, we will minister to them. We will reach out to them. We will give them a hand. We will have them into our home and we will share our meal with them. It was real in that New Testament church. They real enough that these people, they were sensitive to one another's needs and they did something. I have no doubt that there's a lot of sensitivity within the body of Christ today. There's a lot of people who are caring for one another, who are caring for the needs of individuals who are in plight or who are sick. I know many of you care for the widows. You pray for them. You, you think about them. Does it go even further that you would give something like your time and visit them and to help them? I know you care for one another when you see somebody, you hear of somebody, we give you a prayer request and they're going through a trial. Would you give by making a visit, by making a meal, by lending a hand? Do something more than just sit back and thinking about them, which is great, which is good, but doing something practical. This church did. This church was not possessive of its possessions. Can that be said about you and me? It's an amazing story. These people lived out what James writes about. James says, hey, listen, real faith really does. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute, what good is it to say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, and you don't give them of the things which are needed for their body? He says, Thus, faith by itself, if it doesn't have genuine, caring, active assistance to others, that type of faith is dead. So we know these, are, these people are very genuine, that they are helping. But what strikes me is the extent of their generosity. What I mean by that is this. Who did the sharing? Who are the people's who were giving to help out. Anybody who could. Do you notice how he stresses that? He says uh, in this passage, he says they had all things common. And he goes on, he makes the comment in, in uh, distribution that there was no one who was saying in verse 32, neither said any of them, any of them, that the things that he possessed was his own. They all had this spirit, this mindset When did they do it? All the times that it was needed. The verbiage that is used where it talks about they brought their possessions and they sold them, the verbs that are used there is they did it a time, another time, another time. They kept doing it as needs were arising. They were being generous. They were being helpful. We read as well that when it comes to the extent of what they did, they didn't hold anything back. They gave all types of things, all things they had in common. And he specifies, especially some possessions, which for them would be their houses and lands. That was their investments. But there was holding nothing back. They didn't limit their compassion to their time. Their limited, you know, monies that they set aside. They would sacrifice. 
they would really give in their generosity. So what strikes me about this extent of their generosity, they did it willingly. There's been no message that we know of that said, give, 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 give. They just had a spirit of giving because of what God has given for them. They wanted to just mimic that and to help out. There was, no, there was no church police force going through and saying, you give this much, you give this much, you give this much. There was no posting of all their incomes to embarrass them to give a certain amount. Or posting what they gave to just put the pressure on. None of that. They gave voluntarily, willingly. And then on top of it, which is the non-American way, they did it without strings attached. I know that in the years of ministry that we have been offered at times some tremendous gifts. It wasn't in this church. It was another church I started. We were given as a baby church, we were given the offer of somebody giving us 10 acres of land to build a building and they would help fund the initial 25% of the building of that building. And as a young pastor, as a young church, as a baby church, it was like, wow, that would be fantabulous. But there were strings attached. I'll give as long as you do this in the church. As long as you do this. It's not a gift if there's strings attached. It's not a gift that's given, you know, it's not appropriate to say, I'm going to give as long as I get recognized. I want to give as long as you do what I say with those funds. When, church, when funds or gifts or things are given to the, to the body of Christ, they are given and hands off. Let the body decide. And so they gave that way. With no conditions, no recognitions. They laid the stuff at the apostles' feet and the distribution was made. It seems like that distribution continues into Acts chapter 6, that the apostles are the ones that are determining which widows, how they're going to minister to them. And so the body was very generous in that regard. Now I know some of this has changed in time. We aren't told anymore in the epistles that explain how we operate beyond Acts. We're not told to come and lay the, feet, lay the gifts at the uh, preacher's feet. We're not told to do that. Don't do that. In fact, we are told in the epistles, it says laying, by your, by laying in store, the, the idea is a box of some sort that they use like a, the temple did, a place where you put their offerings, their gifts. And so we know that things have changed. Don't bring gifts and whatever and put it at the, the front for all to see. Just put it in the box. Put it in the box. Put it in the, uh, the offering spot. So some of that has changed. The way it's conducted, the way it's, it, we read in 2 Corinthians, how different men were put in charge to monitor and to keep the finances. All of that is good. But the one thing that hasn't changed in Scripture is we're supposed to be charitable. We're supposed to be generous with our possessions. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or proud of it, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives, thing, who gives richly all things to enjoy. You don't have to feel guilty that you have possessions. He goes on, he says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may hold on, may lay hold on eternal life. So we read that and it's the idea that all of us can give 
to be charitable, to help out others, whether it be a possession or whether it be our time, whether it be some things that we possess that we share with others. But what happens is most of us read that text and we get hung up with this, this first word, those who are rich. And we say, that's not me. That's not me. That is so-and-so. I can tell by the car they drive to church. I can tell by, you know, whatever. Well, wait a minute. That is written in a, to when, when Paul, uh, uh, yeah, Paul wrote that to, um, to Timothy. That's written while Timothy is sitting at Ephesus pastoring. And we compare what their culture was to ours and they had, quite a, they had quite a distinction between wealthy and not wealthy people. I mean, they had people who were masters and people who were slaves. Today, do we have a real change in wealth between countries and cultures? Let me ask a question. The average, the average American household income in 2021, what was it? What did you say? 50000 Anybody want to guess? This is the average across the United States. Go ahead. You have no numbers, but you're whispering. I can't hear. 30,000? 100,000? The average income for a household was $70,000 in America. Yeah, a lot of you are going, that's not me. I'm not. Okay, so you're below average. <laughs> you know. This is average. Now, let's translate that. The average worldwide household income. What do you think? This is in the same year, 2021. Are we in America rich compared to the rest of the world? Absolutely. 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 If your income is $10,000 a year... Even part-time job, whatever. If you're just ten thousand, you make more than eighty-four percent of the world. By world standards, by economics, are we in the category they that are rich? We are, we are. And so, by comparison, we say, okay, and 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 understand, we don't live where the prices are. The, the prices vary throughout the world. But the point is, we are rich people in that sense that we can't excuse to say, I don't need to be generous because I don't make as much as so-and-so. I need to be generous just because God has been generous to us. As a people, as a nation, we live. I mean, seriously. If America wasn't a great place financially, why would they all want to get here? Okay. So the point is that you and I have to ask this question. Do we have unity inspired generosity towards one another. As our spiritual ancestors in Scripture, do you give to help others in need? Are you willing to give up some things to assist others in need? Are you an individual that, this to me was very, very provocative, am I willing to sell something to help meet a need? Because usually the things that I buy, I don't buy quickly. I save up for. Or we think about, am I willing to give up some of that? You said, hey, wait a minute. I don't have much. I want to remind you what Scripture says to the church of Corinth. When they were saying, we don't have much, the Spirit responded this way. 
It is not according to what a man doesn't have. Uh, in that sense, it's accepted here. In the, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's not according to what you don't have. It's according to what you do have. You know, to determine what can I do? How can I help others? How can I assist? I mean, this is something everyone can do. You can open your home to be hospitable to new believers. Do you? Do you befriend as we expand, as we grow? Are you an individual who gives up time to encourage others? Do you give up time in that sense to go and visit somebody who's a shut-in? I know that rest homes are some of the places you don't want to go to. But do you model before your children that we will go and visit somebody and maybe just sing with them because they're shut in or they're in one of those facilities? What project are you doing, have you done, to show your family how we are willing to be generous to help out a widow who's got to take care of her house? And she doesn't have that same ability as you have because you have many hands in your house. But to give a hand. I was reading a story about the mayor of New York from you know, back in the Depression era, LaGuardia, airport named after him. And he was quite a character, quite a you know, different type of bird. He did all kinds of strange things in clothing and stuff, but he also wanted to be really hands-on as the mayor. So he would go with the police when they would do raids. He would take entire orphanages to the, to the ball games in town and pay out of his pocket. He, you know, when the city papers went on strike, he went to the radio station and would read the, read the comics on the radio station for all that time or whenever it happened. Well, the story comes out that there was one evening, a cold evening in January of that year, that he goes down to one of the local districts where they're holding night court. And he went in and told the judge, hey, you've worked hard. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to sit and do the judging this evening. So he sat down, did the judging, and there was different cases. There could be traffic fines. There could be people who were caught loitering. There could be, you name it, it was there. And before him was brought a grandmother who was pretty shabby. And she was weeping and crying, and she came, he said, what's, what, what did she charge for? And they said, she stole a loaf of bread. And he called out, you know, who's, who was damaged by her theft? And the store owner stood, and he said, this lady stole a loaf of bread. She came in asking, begging for it, and I'm not giving out food, chair, I'm a bakery, I need to make money. And so when my back was turned, all of a sudden she stole, and I could see out of the corner of my eye, and, you know, and the mayor said, well, ma'am, why did you steal? And she's sobbing and weeping, and she's telling him. She said, my son-in-law, he deserted his family, my daughter and her two children. And they have had to come to live with me because my daughter now is very, very sick. And I don't have an income for four miles to feed, and I, I, I don't have anything. We've used up everything that I had. And so I went there because my grandchildren haven't eaten for two days. And I asked this man and told this man, would you just give me one loaf of bread? And he refused. And I didn't know what else to do. And so she says, I know I was wrong. I shouldn't have taken it. But I was desperate for my grandchildren who were back in the apartment weeping. And I took it. I wish I hadn't, but I was desperate. Look, Wardy looks at the man, the baker. He said, seriously, are you going to press charges? And Matt said, I'm making an example of her. If I don't press charges against her, who knows who, what else they'll take from me? And so LaGuardia said, ma'am, I'm really sorry. 
the law demands that either you pay $10 or you go to jail for 10 days. And she said, I don't have anything. I don't know. And LaGuardia said, that's it. $10. Well, after he slammed the gavel, he pulled out his billfold, took the $10 and threw it to the bailiff and said, her fine's paid. He said, one other thing. I'm ordering that everybody in this room be fined 50 cents for living in a city where a woman who has starving children has to steal a loaf of bread. Everybody, 50 cents. Bailiff collected. So they went around to all the police, the lawyers, people there for traffic stuff, and they collected. They even went to the baker. And he had to contribute. And at the end they had $47. The woman was absolutely stunned as LaGuardia took the money and gave it to her. He said, now feed your grandchildren. The people in the courtroom, all but the baker, stood up and gave him a standing ovation. It was printed in the papers, the whole thing. That's the type of, Christian, uh, of practice that should come from Christians, of being generous, to meet needs, to help people out to look for opportunities to assist individuals. You know, I think what else is here in this text is something that is very subtle. In the middle of all this ministering to each other, in the middle of helping each other, of giving in a very generous way, it says this, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It said the same thing at the end of verse 31. They spake the word of God with boldness. In the middle of helping, they don't lose the focus of their mission. Their big mission is supposed to be preaching the gospel. Yes, should they be sensitive to the needs of other people? Absolutely. But that doesn't take away the mission of sharing the word of God, of evangelizing. People need the gospel. And so they share the gospel. That is just what Jesus told them to do. So here are individuals in a church setting, it's growing, that didn't get so preoccupied with helping one another that they neglected the spiritual task of those helping those people meet their needs spiritually. They didn't get so busy with giving, giving out charitable food boxes, which we've done, which is a great thing to do, that we forget to give out the gospel. It, doesn't, it, it isn't a group of people that say, I am more comfortable visiting the widows and the shut-ins. I'll do that instead of being a witness. They had a balance. They kept it up. They did it, and they didn't give money as a substitute for being a witness. Is that easy to do? When we talk about missions, is it easy to give money for missions, but never do it yourself? Nobody's going to answer it. I will. It's easier to give it to the missions box than to share the tracks. It is easier to give a sacrificial Sunday offering, and it's a good thing to do. It is easier to do that than to go down and visit and share the gospel with people downtown. But this church didn't lose that focus. They maintained it. The results, what stands out, (laughs) they're amazing. 
the results is nobody has any, any needs where, where their needs are not being met. They're not making each other rich. They're, they're meeting basic needs. The result is they are doing what God had told Israel to do as a nation. You go back in the Old Testament and part of that whole system of forgiving the debt and those things, and I'm not advocating their system, but that was all about the idea of I, don't, I want you to eliminate poverty to the point that people aren't destitute. You're going to have differences in classification and how much income people have. But I want to get rid of destitution. I want to get rid of starvation. Israel never got to that point because they were never generous enough that they followed the plan of forgiving debts. They were fearful. They were hanging on to possessions. If, 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 I, if I forgive that debt, then I'm going to lose interest. If, if I don't hang on to this property... I won't make as much money. And so they never fulfilled that. But now we read for the first time in the course of history that a group of God's people, they did it. They did it where people weren't destitute and starving because the body responded to it. And as a result of this, there's, it's going to say that they're filled with the Spirit. But there's a, there's a phrase in verse 33 that is potent. Did you catch it? And great what? Great grace was upon them all. So these people have this witness. They have this, this emboldened power to share the gospel. And all of a sudden it's impacting people. People are seeing. They're generous. They're united. They're helping one another. It's a family atmosphere where there's 15,000 people who are caring for each other, who are considerate of each other, who are knowing each other, who are getting together. And I want that fellowship. Just like what Jesus had prayed for when he said that they may be one like we are so that the world may believe. What, how did he put it elsewhere? That if you love one another, they will know that you are my disciples. So the impact for evangelism is exploded, is helped, is enhanced by you and I being charitable, loving, having unity towards one another. And then they experience God's blessings upon us. Great grace upon them. So I, I pause and just go, have you responded to trials of light? Did you do the Elijah or did you do what the New Testament Christians did? Run, get angry, isolate? Or did you do what these people did? They stayed, they prayed, they obeyed, and they ministered to one another which is God's prescription that he gave to Elijah who is hiding in the cave and when he finally stopped running, stopped arguing with God, stopped being upset that God had him in this situation that cost him so much, God says, I want you to minister to other people even though you're in a trial. That is still God's prescription to overcoming and handling trials in your life. So seek for opportunities to minister, to encourage, to build up, to help others. I have to ask myself this question. Am I characterized by this idea of charity, generosity, unity within the body? Do I encourage? Do I promote it? Do I assist in it? 
Do I look for opportunities to help? Am I willing to spend time to help out others in need in the midst of busyness of life? Even if it doesn't fit our schedule. Let me read for you. A story that is taken from a book called Stories of the Heart. The nurse escorted the tired, anxious young man to the bedside of the old sick man. Your son is here, she whispered to the old patient. She had to repeat the word several times before the old man's wearied eyes opened. He was heavily sedated because of the pain of his heart attack, and he dimly saw the young man standing beside his bed. He reached out his hand, and the young man tightly wrapped his fingers around it, squeezing a message of encouragement to the old man. The nurse brought a chair next to the bedside for the young man to sit on. All through the night, that young man sat, holding the old man's hand and offering gentle words of hope. The dying man said nothing as he held tightly to the son's hand. As dawn approached, the old man died. The young man placed the hand on the bed, the hand that he had been holding for hours, the lifeless hand. Then he went and notified the nurse. While the nurse did what was necessary, the young man waited outside, and when she was done, she offered words of sympathy to the young man, but then he interrupted her. And he looked at her and he said, Who was that old man? Startled, the nurse said, What do you mean? I thought he was your father. He's not my father. I never saw him before this evening. Then why didn't you say something when I took you to his room? The man answered, It was obvious that he needed his son and his son wasn't here. When I realized he was too sick to tell whether I was his son or not, I knew how much he needed me to be his son, no matter how much time it cost me. What would you have done? Would you have invested time to minister that way? Let me rephrase it. Do you? Your most precious commodity, your time. Are you charitable to minister to others with your time. We close with these questions. Will you foster more unity within the body of Christ? How might you do that? How about hospitality? How about the idea of getting together with others to pray together and share your needs when we have prayer times? How about getting to know others better that when the service is over, instead of getting out of here so quickly to get to your favorite restaurant, which I'm holding you from, taking time, inviting somebody to go with you? How about taking the opportunity to meet somebody that you've not met before? You might find they've been here for 40 years, but that's okay. Now you've got a new friend. How about getting involved in ministries together where we share the Word of God? We have another ministry coming up in the next weeks. Another ministry that we do that is just a fantastic ministry to get to know other people. To work together to share the Word of God. And shortly, I'm not sure exactly when, but shortly we're going to say, hey, how many of you want to get involved with the reenactment? It's a means of building unity together coming. You say, well, you know, Sunday mornings are busy. That's why we have services and Bible studies at other times for you. To come together this evening. 
to be able to study together, to visit, to get to know one another. That's why we do the Wednesday Bible studies. That's why we encourage, do some Bible studies like this Wednesday. We don't have anything here. Get together with somebody. Build unity within the body. Minister. Go, go together with another family. Go minister to one of the shut-ins. We'll give you the names. But work at being charitable with your time, your possessions. Demonstrate to your kids real love that Jesus Christ wants us to have. Father, I pray, help me and my friends here this morning to not just hear this, but to actually live this. To handle our trials this week by seeking to minister to others. To work at becoming more body-oriented instead of my own schedule orientation. To help to reach out to minister. Help us, by the grace of God, to be more effective in sharing the gospel. And if there's anyone here in the room right now with heads bowed, eyes closed, and you are not sure you are on your way to heaven, we want to give you that opportunity. While we just pause, while we just have the song playing, if you would like to talk with somebody about your eternal destiny and know you're on your way to heaven, then look at me right now. If you're not sure, get up. Go and talk to those people at this side door. They will take you aside in private and show you from the Word of God how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. It'll take a few minutes, but it'll make all the difference for eternity. You can go right now. Right now. In fact, to make it easier, we'll just stand so you can squeeze past as people are standing and we're ready to close our service. If you would like to go talk with somebody, go do that now. Right now. Father, I thank you for these folk. I thank you for their friendship. I thank you for their godliness, their love for one another. Help that to expand within this body. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much.